Coming up on Word Matters, slips of the tongue and errors of the ear. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. Eggcorns are, for all intensive purposes, errors. But they're errors worth digging into. I'll grab the shovel. When I was in sixth grade, my class was learning calligraphy. I think it was in an art class. And I was very pleased with my calligraphic skills. And so is a friend of mine. And we were comparing and he suggested that we have a kind of contest to see who could actually make the most beautiful calligraphic rendering of a particular phrase. So I took this challenge and the phrase that we were to write down was, excuse me while I kiss the sky. And so I wrote down in my best, best calligraphy, very, very carefully, this line from a very famous song that I did not know. And I wrote in my best calligraphy, excuse me while I kiss this guy. Meanwhile, my friend, of course, wrote down, excuse me while I kiss the sky, because he knew the Jimi Hendrix song, and I did not. Had your friend suggested this as the exercise? Yes, he was a Hendrix fan. I'm willing to go out on a limb and suggest he knew this was a fraught phrase. <laughs> I don't think he did. This is sixth grade. I think he probably assumed that I knew the song, which actually was famous. What he didn't know is that I was pretty much just full-on Karen Carpenter. So I had no idea about Jimi Hendrix at all. I don't think he knew because he was truly surprised when this is what I ended up writing. And I don't even remember who won. I think actually the misrendering, the mishearing, the whole contest was really just ruined. But I later learned that there is a term for what I did. And also what I did is a really famous example of this particular phenomenon, and that is the word for this mishearing of something, this misunderstanding of a song or of a poem or something is called a mondegreen, M-O-N-D-E-G-R-E-E-N. And it is one of various different kind of slips of the ear that English speakers have. Do you all have any mondegreens that you have ashamedly learned later on that you had been repeating? I think I mainly just lean more towards mispronouncing words to a sufficiently embarrassing extent that I don't even need mondegreens. <laughs> I managed to embarrass myself just with regular old words. You say all the lyrics correctly then. I think I just avoid saying the lyrics for <laughs> fear of pronouncing the words wrong. <laughs> he didn't lay a trap for you, but it is a trap of language, isn't it, that we hear what we hear. For me, it's a crystal clear one which I maintain to this day isn't a mondegreen, but better than the lyric, which is Lucy in the sky with Linus. <laughs> and I was young enough that made perfect sense to me, and it still does. I love that one. Yes. So instead of Lucy in the sky with diamonds, the Beatles lyric, <laughs> it is Lucy in the sky with Linus because the Peanuts cartoon is incredibly important. I was probably even younger than sixth grade at that time, so I'm sure I wouldn't have understood an LSD reference of any kind for another good 10 years. <laughs> and even then, it would be very abstract and difficult. But these are traps, and particularly with lyrics. You mentioned Karen Carpenter. A lot of pop music isn't as clear as that, even Frank Sinatra. There are very few words you wouldn't understand in a kind of older style of pop music. And from the Beatles forward, really, 
well, actually from rock and roll forward, from the very early R&B, all of those early R&B songs that became rock and roll. That's when things became kind of cluttered, and also the balance in recordings was different. The guitar would be as loud as the voice, for example. Isn't Mondegreen itself Mondegreen? It and is. It, it actually comes right. from a song. It doesn't come from a rock song, does it? The word Mondegreen was coined by journalist Sylvia Wright. It was in the 1950s. She was talking about a Scottish folk song, The Bonnie Earl of Moray. Oh, they have slain the Earl of Moray and laid him on the green. But she heard, oh, they have slain the Earl of Moray and Lady Mondegreen, instead of <laughs> and laid him on the green and Lady Mondegreen. <laughs> She was including, instead of increasing the information about the setting, about where this guy was slain, putting a lady in there. When you think about the amount of time that people primarily heard poetry and songs without reading them, just auditorily, this is how we <laughs> think of the epic poems of yore, I'm sure that there were Mondegreens happening then, too. And you wonder about those epics. The tradition of Homer is presumably an oral one. The legend of Robin Hood was a spoken one for possibly centuries before anyone wrote it down. And so who knows how many elements of those things came from some kind of misunderstanding. But the misunderstanding that is governed by a logic of a kind. That's right. A Mondegreen succeeds because it makes sense. It, it works. It's compelling in some way. Yeah. yeah. Lucy and Linus. I mean, <laughs> it makes sense. And there must be a million of these. Well, a very famous one, in addition to Excuse Me While I Kiss the Sky, Another really famous one is Creedence Clearwater Revival song, There's a Bathroom on the Right, <laughs> instead of There's a Bad Moon on the Rise. <laughs> I like that one because, you know, you're in a bar and you're like, where is the bathroom? There's a bathroom on the right. <laughs> Just, you know, it's helpful. It doesn't actually seem like a likely lyric in the song, but it still is compelling in its own way. Well, our brains are, in a sense, they're hardwired to seek meaning. We're going to connect dots, whether we can see all of the correct lines or not. So we create meaning where there isn't any sometimes. Right. My father's name is Richard. And when he was a little boy, he thought that the Pledge of Allegiance had a section where you were supposed to insert your own name. The United States for Richard stands one nation <laughs> under God, because there he was standing, Right. It's for which it stands, but he thought it was for Richard's stands. That's a great one. I assume that most of us have these tucked away in our histories, these mishearings, misunderstandings, even though Ammon denies it. I'm sure I do. I'm just in blissful ignorance of which <laughs> ones I'm mishearing and misremembering. There's another common one that's more recent that is a favorite in my family. There's an Eminem song. I'm friends with the monster that's under my bed, but people sometimes mishear it. And there are very funny TikTok videos. People kind of making a video to I'm friends with the mustard that's under <laughs> my bed. I like that one. I think that's pretty good. You're listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. More slips and errors ahead. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu 
slash podcast. Word Matters listeners get 25% off all dictionaries and books at shop.merriam-webster.com by using the promo code MATTERS at checkout. That's MATTERS, M-A-T-T-E-R-S, at shop.merriam-webster.com. I'm Ammon Shea. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for The Word of the Day, a brief look at the history and definition of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org. We'll continue our exploration of egg corns, mondegreens, and spoonerisms. Mondegreens differ from several other kinds of errors that we make. Another kind of error is the egg corn. Mm. And that's a great name. It sort of exemplifies what it's talking about, right, in this case? That's right. <laughs> An egg corn, this is a term that was coined by the linguist Jeffrey Pullum, and he named this phenomenon egg corn. It is an example of itself. Someone misunderstood the word acorn, A-C-O-R-N, as the word egg corn. That's how this person pronounced the word. That's how this person understood the word. The idea being that it's the egg that hatches an oak tree. It's a little sure. corn. It grows into an oak tree. It's it looks, an egg corn. Looks like a little egg. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why not? So the only difference really between mondegreens and egg corns, they both have to kind of have this logic to them. They both have to make sense. They are both primarily a mishearing of an established phrase or of an established word. But the egg corns are more isolated. They're not from some kind of lyric or some song or poem that has been written by someone else. They're more isolated. I have a very distinct egg horn that is, in fact, egg horn, which is that for years when I would hear this at first, I thought people were talking about inkhorns. And inkhorns, more or less lexicographical term for the kind of very fanciful, extremely long, usually Latin and Greek inflected words that lexicographers and, and other people came up with in the 16th and early 17th century. They're also called aureate terms, meaning gold words. And for years, I always thought, man, everybody else has got a really different view of what an inkhorn is than I do. Like, I really think of inkhorns as like the kind of fanciful coinages of Cockerham and Thomas Blount and all these other like, Phillips. The, right, right. Edmund Phillips and, and John Bulliker. And, and they're talking about a very different kind of inkhorn. And I, and I was always too embarrassed to ask why their inkhorn was different than my inkhorn. And then I eventually realized it was an inkhorn. That's a fantastic story. It brings in so much about dictionaries and about you, frankly. A lot of what you have created as a scholar was the consequence of teaching yourself, of being self-motivated and autodidactic. And so it makes perfect sense to me that you would have encountered the word inkhorn, which is a really kind of niche term for the type of dictionaries, monolingual dictionaries, in the early modern period of the English language most people have never heard of. But of course, egg corn is a term that I only learned a few years ago as an adult. So the fact is, we were already kind of functioning in the dictionary world when I encountered this word. In fact, I know Jeffrey Pullum, and I've met him a number of times, but I learned this word far later than the time when I first met him. I don't connect them particularly. It makes good sense uh, that, that he did coin it. He's a very witty and charming and brilliant man. I really like the idea, Emin, of you being aware of this term and not really wanting to raise the question of your possible <laughs> misunderstanding of what an egg corn, ink corn 
was because the world of lexicography and linguistics is such a doggy dog world. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. For all intensive purposes. (laughs) Yes. Doggy dog world, of course, is an egg corn, as is for all intensive purposes. It should be dog eat dog world. Although, you know, a doggy dog world, I like that egg corn so much because it really challenges the idea on a linguistic front. A doggy dog world sounds really friendly. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of threat or animosity there, but the actual phrase is dog eat dog world, which really just is very evocative. I wonder how many of these are little chunks or fixed phrases or idioms like those that are heard so frequently as a chunk. I don't listen to the three elements of dog eat dog. I just know oh, it's a world that's very competitive. So I just take it semantically and not lexically. I don't really understand it as a grouping of individual words, but as a little chunk. There's a lot of such examples. Oh, there are. And you are right that most egg corns are not individual words like the word egg corn Mm -hmm. itself. Most of them are phrases, like for all intensive purposes instead of for all intents and purposes. There's also nip it in the butt. Instead of Uh nip it in the bud, you nip something in the bud, you pluck off the bud of a plant before it is able to flower. Nipping somebody in the butt sounds more like a product of a doggy dog world. And there are some that come from pet phrases or catchphrases. A famous example is big league as a modifier, big league reporter, for example, or a big league victory, which was often understood as bigly. It's an unfavored adverb. And many people go to the dictionary to see, is that really a word? Analysts looked very carefully at the sort of visual representation of recorded sound of that particular politician who used to use this term quite frequently. And it turns out he was always saying big league, but many of us heard it as big league. But of course, if you're speaking quickly, that's exactly what happens. It's a consequence of language. I'm sure it happens in all languages, too. One of the things that I find interesting about this is that the way that language works is usually when we have a case like Chester draws for chest (laughs) of draws, we do not enter the eggcorn. But every once in a while, an eggcorn kind of becomes successful. And as is the case with buck naked and butt naked, in which we do enter both. And it began as buck naked in the 19 teens. And then in about 1970, people started using butt naked as a variant, (laughs) presumably because it makes sense as many such kind of mishearings or misapplications of language do. It makes sense in that you were naked enough that you could see somebody's butt. And butt naked took off 40 odd years after buck naked. And it's clearly a mishearing of the original. We do enter both of them now. Yes, we do. And butt naked actually makes more sense than buck naked, (laughs) right? What I recall is that the origin of buck naked is really unclear. It could have to do with the deer buck, the male deer. Who doesn't wear clothes. Right. Who has fur, (laughs) as do all the other deer. There is no logic, really, to what is the original phrase. And Ammon's right. I mean, it shows how language works. We get into this descriptive, prescriptive mission of dictionaries, which I think is sometimes a straw man argument. But many people say, well, if if an error is repeated frequently enough, then you just put it in the dictionary because you have no standards. And that's not exactly right. If some term like this is used by many people and so frequently that it gets into print and it's found in books and magazines and newspapers, then our job isn't to pass judgment, but to record it, to notice it first and then to catalog it with the rest of the language. 
when a phrase or a word is doing the job, if it yeah. actually does the job of communicating a meaning that is widely recognized as the meaning, it's a tool being used to do a particular thing, and it's our job to define it as such. And no one would misunderstand it. If you were just in fluent conversation to hear someone say butt naked and you had never heard that before, in the context and in the rhythm of the conversation, you would understand it. This is how presumably something like I could care less became part of the language. Now, part of that, I suspect, is just simply because I couldn't care less. The negative part of couldn't is the unstressed part of that particular sequence of syllables. And so if you're speaking quickly, you could easily swallow an unstressed syllable. That's why they're unstressed. That's what happens in English. And so, of course, it contradicts logic, but logic isn't always the same as language. That's right, especially when it comes to idiom. Right. And the prominent parts of that phrase, could, care, less, mm -hmm. just has a function all on its own. And whether the nt is there or not is, as far as communication goes, as far as bare communication goes, it's irrelevant. Again, in context, it's probably always understood exactly as it was intended. But there is also the widely despised phrases and words that people use that are distracting to a listener yes. or a reader because they're so roundly understood as being terrible, terrible errors. Sure. And this gets some of the famous ones. It really is what dictionary people call usage, imply for infer flaunt for flout. Those are two examples of things that are evergreen copy editor catches, things that people look for and listen to. And ultimately, of course, in context and conversation, those terms are always understood exactly as they're intended. And really what we reveal is that we're among the club of people who notice that flaunt was used for flout in this instance. <laughs> That's one of the things about being very careful about language use. That's kind of a reward also, that if you're very careful, then you'll never cause someone to sort of scratch their head as they're either listening or reading what you say. But if you focus on it a lot, then all over sudden, you will find <laughs> that you are being pedantic. All over sudden is another. That's you a like how one. I did that? <laughs> I was working on these eggcorns all over sudden. <laughs> I like that one also because, again, I guess I like the eggcorns that really defy logic to a degree because I just think they're funny. Another one is day to day. So the established phrase is day hyphen to hyphen day. From one day to another day, day to day, from yeah. this day to that day. But we now see day hyphen today, G-O-D-A-Y, oh. day to day. And again, if it functions, the meaning is not lost unless the reader is so distracted by the structure and that's really where you get to what usage means for professional editing, for example, is to not distract from the meaning and the direction of the piece. And these conventions are established by the habits of long, long, long histories of publishing. And so respecting those things ends up becoming the circuit in a way because the editors enforce the more conventional approaches to these things. And then we become accustomed to those conventions and then the conventions are continued. And uh, that's an important part of language. It's an important part of reference. It's an important part of dictionaries because there's kind of an idea that a dictionary is supposed to have authority because it's permanent, because this idea of it was always this way. My teachers told me this. My parents taught me this. 
That's never really true because language always is moving in slow motion. However, there is a kind of illusion of permanence that we want and cling to. And we really want people to spell words correctly as they are in the dictionary and use these meanings in the right way. And so innovation, something new that you've never seen before, you just scratch your head and you're taken out of the narration or the news or whatever it is you're reading. I see the power of editorial voice and the proofreading voice and the professional writing voice is really very much receding these days. Mm. Like Most of us see in our casual reading, if we're on social media at all, is the unfiltered text of someone who is probably not a professional writer mm -hmm. or editor. You know, I think that's really fascinating, too. And I actually assume we will see more examples like Buck Naked becoming fully established because we see so much more informal writing and it does therefore spread more quickly. And so these eggcorns are very likely to become more frequently accepted. I think that's true. And I think it's a very exciting time that we're seeing so much unfiltered writing. It showcases the creativity of people's natural language use and the, the kind of glorious messiness of the English language. One of my favorite research moments that I ever had was a few years back when Jesse DeWitt, who works at Miriam here with us, he and I took the entire corpus of writings from early English books online. So we took about 65,000 or 85,000 texts that were digitized and we alphabetized them. So we alphabetized several billion words of text. Ammon, tell people how old these early English books online are. Well, they go from more or less 1435 till about 1702. So several mm -hmm. hundred years of old, more or less, what we think of as old English writing. Though it's not actually old English, the language is just older books. So this is Shakespeare's century and the, several hundred years before. And we took all the several billion words and alphabetized them. And then we took out all the repeats. So we just had an alphabetized list of the words that people used. The thing that was immediately apparent was how spelling was not consistent. For instance, we found that there were more than a hundred different ways of spelling the word acknowledge. I admit acknowledge is a difficult word to spell, but most of us stick within two to five variants of it. And to see more than a hundred of them, it was astonishing how many different <laughs> ways you can spell this word. And this was not an unusual word. There were other words, which probably had presumably, you know, many, many more ways of spelling them. And so this is kind of what happens. I think this is both cautionary tale, but also like of what happens when nobody's minding the gates and stuff. There are no editors. There's no rules. But it also works out just fine. You know, nobody was saying, you know, what is this word? It's, it's obviously acknowledged, just a weird way of spelling it. People still could read the books. We can still read the books hundreds of years later. The language still functions as a language. It makes me think about the production of text and even printing, which goes back to just about the beginning of that time period that you're talking about. And of course, there were no dictionaries as we know them today. There were polyglot dictionaries or word lists, and certainly there were bilingual dictionaries, especially for Latin and Italian and French, the Renaissance languages. But if you were a printer or a typesetter, you didn't necessarily have a go-to reference, like the standard book that everyone would look to, which is the way that Merriam-Webster Collegiate Dictionary is used by typesetters and printers in many, many, many places in the United States today to determine simply, does that word have a hyphen? Does it have two L's? Where do I break this syllable if I have to go to the next line? Those kinds of questions have been really standardized over time, but there were no standards for that entire period you're talking about, which is kind of fascinating. It shows the production of a huge amount of literature and text that was kind of unregulated in the ways that we think of today. And 
Ammon's point is exactly perfect, which is, of course, they were still producing literature and still producing a lot of useful texts. Right. It was actually naturally regulated yes. by the users of the language, not by an authority. Yeah. It was just like, if this works, then it works. Well, here's the thing. I think a dictionary is really the greatest example of consensus that we as a species have ever produced, because in the case of English, it's a thousand or more years of trial and error. And we finally decided that we're going to spell this word with a silent K. And it's going to stay there because it has some bearing on the history of the word, has no bearing on the meaning, but word like knight in shining armor, or even acknowledge, which we don't always hear that as a K. So those conventions happen over time. And it's right. It's not one person. There's no traffic cop who's saying yes and no to every one of these decisions. Before we leave this topic of errors, there is another kind of error that we have not yet talked about. And this last category of error is called a spoonerism. We define it as a transposition of usually initial sounds of two or more words, as in tons of soil for sons of toil. This is an unintentional transposition, a switching of sounds. These are not typically picked up and used because people think that they are correct somehow. They are accidents of speech, but I'm a big fan of Spoonerisms. The name comes from a British clergyman and educator named William Archibald Spooner, and apparently he just naturally came up with Spoonerisms very, very frequently, and it seems constantly speaking to audiences. And so there are all these anecdotes about him just saying absolutely ludicrous things. There was a time when he was giving a speech and Queen Victoria was in the audience, and he said, apparently, I have in my bosom a half-warmed fish, <laughs> when he actually intended, I have in my bosom a half-formed wish. <laughs> I do just absolutely love a spoonerism, and my 11-year-old son comes up with spoonerisms all the time. It's a game that he plays. Recently, we were talking about party favors, which he spoonerized into farty pavers. <laughs> He has a talent. Definitely. Natural gift. Yes, yes. It's very playful. It's a playful use of language. Yes. Uh, although, don't we define Spoonerism as an error, right? It's, it's not good English. <laughs> it's, but it's usually unintentional. Although, if you're really playful, you can swap those initial sounds like that and just kind of have fun with it in a kind of poetic way. Yes, you can intentionally make Spoonerisms, but I think Spoonerisms are a phenomenon that also just occurs in the speech of some people. Sure. I have done them by accident from time to time, and I think they're good fun. It's interesting, too. It's because it's purely coincidental that the resulting sound also makes sense in some kind of way. If you say President Reagan or resident pagan, it makes us laugh because it does actually mean something. It just means something else, and it may or may not have a bearing on anything. But you realize, oh, right, the language is actually building blocks in some ways. That's right. In a true spoonerism, I think you wind up with something that does communicate meaning. You don't wind up with two nonsense words or two nonsense <laughs> syllables. If you have any spoonerisms or mondegreens or eggcorns that you would like to share with us, we would love to hear them. Write to us at wordmatters at m-w.com. know what you think about Word Matters. Review us wherever you get your podcasts or email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, 
visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by John Vosey and me. For Ammon Shea and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster and New England Public Media.